Ephesians chapter number 4, and uh, I'd like to read just the first three verses, and I want to preach a message tonight on the responsibility of the believer in their daily walk. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. Pray that you'd bless your word tonight. Father, pray that there'd be power and unction in the utterance of it. Lord, that you would just hide us behind the shadow of your cross, that we might see not ourselves, but that we might see Christ high and holy lifted up. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the church, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement of the body of Christ. We pray that you'd gain glory from everything that's said tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1, that every believer has a vocation that they are called to. Now, a vocation is a job. Actually, it's even more than a job. When we think of a vocation, we're talking not merely about a singular task, but we're thinking rather about a trade or a way of life that a person is called to. Uh, in the time when Paul wrote this, you, you didn't go down to the McDonald's and get a job. You didn't go and become a secretary and get a job by and large. Uh, but there were a lot of craftsmen. There were a lot of people that had a trade. They might be a, a stonemason. They might, like our Lord and, and like Joseph, be a carpenter. They might be any number of other trades. And that was their way of life. It was something that they were, that, that they possessed, we might say, a skill. And it was something that went with them no matter where they went. It was not something they just did for a short season. But because they had this skill set, that's who they were. That defined them. Uh, the economists would call it job mobility. You, you heard that phrase before, job mobility. Uh, for instance, if you go and you work as a secretary somewhere, if you go and you work in something where you just, you've learned a task and you're performing a task, you might leave and not be able to find somewhere that you can do that job. But if you gain a trade, there'll always be a need for it and you can take that with you and it goes with you wherever you go. It's interesting that the Holy Ghost would use this term vocation. Vacation. You can tell it's the end of December. Somebody say amen to that. It's interesting that he'd use this term vocation. Because I can think of no more descriptive term to describe the responsibility of the believer in the body of Christ and in their daily life. Being a Christian is not just something you do. It's who you are. It's not just a task. It's a trade. It's a way of life. It should define you, not just for eight hours a day, but it should define you for 24 hours out of a day, not just five days out of a week, but seven days the whole week, and not just for a season, but continuously. And so Paul says, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. This passage contains three things that I want you to notice by way of introduction. Let me say that the first thing that he speaks of is a personal vocation of exhibition. He said, what do you mean, preacher? Well, Paul says that each and every one of us has a job to do. We have a calling upon our life. We have a vocation. It's interesting to, to think about this language because, you know, Paul wrote three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And in those, he used a lot of language about 
the responsibilities of the man of God. He talks about them as good soldiers. He talks about them as runners in a race. He talks about them as farmers and, and agricultural laborers and husbandmen and, and, and uh, vine dressers. And he talks at length about the great responsibility upon the man of God and upon people in positions of leadership in the body of Christ. But I'd remind you that the book of Ephesians is not a pastoral epistle was not written to the pastor of the church at Ephesus per se, but rather it was written to the body at large. I'm just going to say it as plain as I can. We have this concept sometimes as though we are spectators or customers at an establishment or at an event when what we really are as church members is members of an organism, of a body that we have a commitment and responsibility to. One of the things that's killing the church today at large is this spectator mentality. And by the way, that's why people float in and out of church the way that they do. They'll go to this one because it suits them for a short while. Then they'll pick up and leave and go to that one because it suits them for a short while. They'll walk through the doors and they always ask the same question. I say this as a pastor and I say it with love in my heart. But they'll walk in with the same attitude. Well, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? Let me see the menu, you know. What do you have for me? Now, I want you to understand something. I believe it is the responsibility of the church body and the church as an organism to minister to people's lives. But we must be reminded that we are an organism, not an organization. And as such, when a person is a part of a local New Testament body, uh, that's not merely them casting lots with where they want to spend their Sunday morning, Sunday night, or even Wednesday nights. That's them entering into a covenant relationship of commitment with a body of believers. And so Paul reminds the church at Ephesus that not just the pastor has a responsibility, not just the deacons have a responsibility, but that every single believer has a calling upon their life, a vocation that they are to walk in and that they are to perform and that they are to be faithful to. I notice in this passage not just a personal vocation of exhibition, something that's going to define the way you live and walk, but I see also a practical vision of expectation. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, he details here in a moment just exactly what those responsibilities are. And we'll spend some time in the message on it. But I want us to notice the very first phrase that he uses. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Let me say that in this passage we also see the prisoner's voice of experience. In other words, Paul was a man that had paid a cost for ministering to the body of Christ. I'll tell you something, if your relationship with the body of Christ is to be meaningful, it's going to cost you something. I'm not talking about the, 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 the folding money in your wallet or your purse. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your emotional investment. I'm talking about being a part of a local church is an experience and an exhibition in vulnerability. Opening your heart, opening your mind, opening your, your, your what's the word, ego, if we can use that term to the sometimes use and abuse of others. Again, this this concept of I, I just go, I sit, I go home. And by the way, there's always needs at Walridge Baptist Church, but I ain't preaching this because we're getting ready to start some big ministry and I'm 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 feeling out throwing feelers for workers. I'm saying this is something that has corrupted modern Christendom and our church is not un, untouched by it. But it's something that if, if we're ever as a church body and if you ever as a believer are going to have a meaningful relationship with your church, you're going to have to move past the concept of merely being a spectator. 
You're going to have to see yourself as a member of that body. And part of what that means is responsibility and accountability, commitment. Sometimes, and there's a lot of reasons we ought to serve the Lord, the chiefest of which should be that we love the Lord. But certainly, there ought to be a sense of responsibility and duty that is associated with the church. The average Elks Lodge and the average Mason Lodge requires and expects and receives more commitment from their average member than a lot of Baptist churches do. And this is a shame. When Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord, he's speaking as somebody that has paid a deep and steep cost to see the church bettered. When he says, of the Lord, we're reminded that he's not there because he did anything wrong. He's there because he was preaching the gospel. He's there because he was trying to plant churches just like the church at Ephesus, which he had planted. And when he asks and calls upon the church at Ephesus to be willing to put aside themselves and their flesh and their ambitions, to sacrifice, to to exhibit a commitment to the body of Christ, I believe he's reminding them that he is the voice of experience in this matter. I don't know that there's anybody walking the earth when Paul penned this that had given as much to the body of Christ as Paul had. And so I would just simply remind you before we even get into the message, because there is a tendency to, you know, it's like water. Water sinks to the lowest level, you know. And it's like lightning. It takes the path of least resistance. And I found that Christians are sometimes the same way. Amen. You can laugh. Even if even if it hurt, you can laugh. Even if you didn't think it was funny, you could laugh. It'd make me feel better. Sometimes believers are the same way. Sometimes they take the path of least resistance because it's easy. Sometimes they sink to the lowest level of expectations because it's the most comfortable thing to do. But I'm just reminding you tonight that the man like Paul made the impact he did, made the difference he did because he wouldn't accept that attitude. And instead he sought in his own personal life to exhibit the highest level of commitment and devotion to the work and body of Christ. What about this vocation? He lists four things that I just want to remind you of very quickly, and then we'll close. He says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Let me say the first responsibility, the first requirement in this vocation, the first, the first expectation that is placed upon every believer. I ain't just talking about preachers or missionaries or Sunday school teachers or deacons, but you and me, every person that hears the sound of my voice, the first responsibility is to glorify the Lord in your life. He says walk worthy. That's strong language. <coughs> I'll tell you why it's so Remarkable, especially in the context of the, of the modern non-committal Christianity that is so pervasive in our culture today. Because we have told ourselves that because we can never be worthy, we can never walk worthy. I'm going to say that again. We've told ourselves that because we can never be worthy, we can never walk worthy. So how do you know that, preacher? Here's why. Because most of the time when people fall into sin when they exhibit less than an appropriate commitment to the work of God or to the local church, or sometimes when they're just making excuses for whatever it might be, they'll say, well, you know, we're all just sinners and we all make mistakes. What they're saying is, because I'm a sinner, I can never really be worthy of the Lord. 
And let me say, that's absolutely true. You can't be worthy of the Lord, nor can I. But he's not saying you have to be worthy. He's saying you have to walk worthy. And there is a difference. It's like with the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that we are to eat of it worthily. And that's not an adjective, it's an adverb. It's describing a, a way or manner in which we do something. None of us are worthy to ever partake in the Lord's table. For we're all sinners. The only thing redeemed of us is what God has redeemed. But that doesn't mean we can't do the action in a worthy way. In the same sense, hey listen, I understand that you and I are not worthy of, of the least of the Lord's graces and mercies. But that don't mean we can't live our life in a way that's worthy of what God has done for us and what He's called us to. It's a cheap Christianity that never asks anything in the way of commitment of Christians. It's a cheap thing. And it's not Bible Christianity. It's not Bible Christianity. So we're to glorify the Lord. How do we do that? I, I see two things. Number one, we're to glorify the Lord by our progress. He says, walk worthy. To walk means to move forward. Typically, unless there's something wrong with you, we don't walk backwards, right? Walk denotes forward progress in our life. Listen, if you're not growing in the Lord, you're not glorifying the Lord. Now, you don't have to grow at the same rate other people grow. You don't have to do what everyone else does, although there are some common denominators that I think are expected of every believer. And they're universal to our spiritual development. But at the end of the day, I'd ask you this simple question. Are you growing closer to the Lord? Now, it's easy for us to shift blame to a thousand other people. Uh, it's easy for us to say, well, it's this person's fault, or it's that person's fault, or it's this group's fault, or it's this. But at the end of the day, the only person that can make you walk is you. It's a personal thing. And everyone, remember, this is a personal calling, a personal vocation. It's not anybody, it is their responsibility for them to do it in their lives, but it's only your responsibility to do it in your life. And it's your responsibility to grow in the Lord. Are you more committed to Christ today than you were a year ago? Are you reading your Bible more? Or, or let's not even make it about, about, I'll say it right here in a second, quantity. Let's make it about quality. Even if you're not reading it more, are you reading it in a more heartfelt way? Are you, are you more studiously searching the Scriptures? Are you giving more to the Lord today? Are you serving the Lord more today? Are you walking closer to Him? Are you more committed? Does He have more of your life today than He had a year ago? I would posit to you that if He doesn't, then you're not glorifying the Lord in your life. See, what glorify, you know what it means to glorify the Lord? It means to give to Him what belongs to Him. All glory belongs to Him. When a person glorifies the Lord, meaning by rendering praise unto Him. Let's just draw it down to a very fundamental basic level. When we talk about glorifying the Lord, a person says, well, I want to praise and glorify the Lord. I want to give Him glory for what He's done in our life. What we're saying is, I'm giving to Him what is due Him. And He's due your commitment and He's due your progress. Now, I'm thankful that the Lord's grace and mercy is sufficient for seasons of backsliddenness. I'm glad that the Lord is gracious even when we're not progressing. But listen, there's a difference between saying God's mad and He's going to throw us into hell and saying it's appropriate and okay that I'm not growing in the Lord. 
And that's the problem. We've, we've taken the extreme and substituted it for the status quo. We've said, well, the Lord loves me. He'll never turn his back on me. That's true. That also doesn't mean that you're living the way that you ought to. And God's mercies are not permissive. It's not him saying it's okay. It might be him saying, I love you in spite of it. It might be him saying, I'll, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But it's not him saying that it's okay to wrap ourselves in spiritual stagnation. I think we glorify the Lord by our progress. Number two, I believe we glorify the Lord by our purity. He says worthy, worthy. So in other words, it's not just about the size of the work or the service or the commitment. It's about the sort of it. We can do all kinds of things for the Lord, but if we're not doing them God's way, then we're not walking worthy of the vocation. This is where a lot of, I believe, churches, and maybe many of them well-meaning, miss it today. And a lot of quote-unquote evangelism will adopt and embrace any manner of wickedness in the hopes of gaining an audience with a sinner. And to do so is counterintuitive and counterproductive. And God's not pleased by it. And God's not glorified by it. Christ came and died for sinners so that He could bring them out of that mess. Not wallow in the mess with them. The same thing is true for your life and mine. Now, it's easy to preach about that. It's easy to preach about the big liberal churches. It's easy to preach about churches that have compromised. But I'm not, I, I'm preaching to Walridge Baptist Church tonight. And let me just put it down on a level that might apply to you and I. You may walk through the doors of Walridge Baptist Church. You've done it tonight. I commend it you for it. I recommend it to you. But if you did it with a bad spirit, it doesn't glorify the Lord. If you did it with your heart closed off to the truth of Scripture, it doesn't glorify the Lord. You may read your Bible, but if you don't do it with an open heart, seeking God's mind and God's will, it doesn't glorify the Lord. You may pray, but if you pray without faith, or if you pray with bitterness, or you pray with a begrudging attitude, or if you pray that you might consume it upon your own lusts, and not seeking the Lord's mind and will, then it doesn't glorify the Lord. You may witness, you may pass out tracts, I hope you do. We spend a lot of money every year printing them so that you'll pass them out. I'm for it. If we do it with a bad spirit, it doesn't glorify the Lord. I'm saying at the end of the day, it's not just about progress. It's about purity. It's not just about doing something. It's about doing the right thing. We're to glorify the Lord in our life. This is the chief and, and primary and, and, and fundamental responsibility of every Christian. You might do everything else right, but if you do it in a bad spirit or if you do it in an unscriptural way, then it's not pleasing the Lord and it's not glorifying the Lord. Let me give you a second thing that's part of this vocation. We are to glorify the Lord. Number two, we are to crucify the flesh. Look what he says in verse two. We're to do this with all lowliness and meekness. These are two terms that don't really find a warm reception in modern Christianity. <coughs> Me and Miss Ina were talking before the service night. We are just talking about the Lord and God's goodness. We are talking about witnessing to people. And we got to talking about what narcissism is. You ever heard the term narcissism? Based upon the fellow Narcissus stared in the river until he fell in or whatever it is. I don't know. I'm not up on... I, listen, I, I, I know more... I know more hillbilly stories than I do, you know, classical stories. But narcissism, a person that is a narcissist, views the world in this way. They view the world as a big play. 
and they're the lead actor. And everybody else is just a supporting role. And inasmuch as somebody contributes to the glorification and beautification of themselves, inasmuch as they're willing like a planet to orbit around that person, then they'll be allowed and permitted and tolerated and maybe even commended and maybe even uh, complimented. But the moment that they don't serve that purpose, they have no use for them anymore. Narcissism. That's the modern bend of much of quote-unquote Christianity. And I listen, I, I and I don't think social media caused it, but I definitely think social media exposed a lot of it. I think it revealed a lot of the, the bend towards the human nature towards that. People have no interest in interaction with other people unless it can be in some way that strokes their ego and bolsters their self-esteem, whatever it might be. At the end of the day, much of modern Christianity is centered not around what we can do for the Lord, but around on what He can do for us. I want you to listen carefully. Anything that's going to get done for me is going to have to be done by the Lord. I'm leaning on Him completely. But it ain't all about what He can do for me. It's also about what I can do for Him. Crucify the flesh. Two things that He mentions. Number one, we are to abase our pride. That's what lowliness is. Lowliness means to take the lesser position, to take the lesser place in a matter. We're not to seek after, like the Lord Jesus warned, we're not to seek after the uppermost seat. You know why? Because somebody bigger and badder than you may come along and move you out of it. He says, instead, take the lower seat. And then somebody kinder and more generous than you might come along and lift you up out of it and put you in a better position. And that's a good illustration of how God deals with those that are prideful that take the upper seat. He abases them. God humbles the prideful. But God exalts the lowly. We're to abase our pride. Listen, I, I got news for you. I got news for me too. I got news for all of us. It ain't about us. It's not. It's not about you. It's not about me. Church life is not about you and not about me. The body of Christ is not about you and it's not about me. The work of God, it's not about you and it's not about me. And if we're going to walk worthy of this vocation, we're going to have to get that through our minds. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. We are to abase our pride. Number two, we're to abandon our power. Here's another word, meekness. It's interesting because there seems to be two common themes prevalent in modern cultural Christianity. One is the claim that it's all about the person, the individual. And it's not to say that there's not some truth to that. Certainly the Lord loved us and gave Himself for us. Certainly the Lord tasted death for every man. He died for you. He died for me. But that's not the sum total of the story. Our life is to be given unto Him. And it's not about us. It's about Him. The devil always takes a grain of truth and wraps it in a lie. Lowliness, abase our pride. Second, meekness. Meekness. You know what I also find to be very prevalent in modern cultural Christianity? The idea of empowerment. Empowerment. See it all the time. If you scroll through social media or if you, if you look at, I don't because it's a waste of time, but if you look at the modern worship songs, quote unquote, 
Everything's about how the Lord's going to embolden us and the Lord's going to empower us and the Lord's going to make us roar like lions and the Lord's going to make us throw down our foes and the Lord's going to give us an ability to conquer everyone around us. Now, it's true that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's true that no weapon formed against you can prosper. But it's also true that the experience and the appropriation of that does not come through resolve or self-esteem. It comes through abandoning our own sense of power and strength. It comes through meekness. Meekness. Meekness, if it's biblical meekness, if it's scriptural meekness, if it's spirit-led and guided meekness, will always win the day. Got news for you. If you walk around with something to prove, then you won't never prove anything. But if you'll submit your spirit to God's spirit, and if you'll say, Lord, all that matters is that you receive glory, and I'll, I'll take the abuse, I'll take the lesser place, I'll take the affliction, I'll take the persecution, if that's what you call on me to do, then you'll find that when the time comes to fight, God will fight the battle. Because the battle's the Lord's. The battle's the Lord's. We need to abandon our own power. Too much has tried to be done today in our own strength. And the arm of flesh is failing us and it will always fail us. The only way we're going to be able to live for the Lord, serve the Lord, glorify the Lord, is by crucifying self and instead just following in simple obedience the leading and guidance of the Spirit of God. We're to crucify the flesh. Let me give you a third thing. Look at verse 2. He says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Not only are we to glorify the Lord and crucify the flesh, but we are to fortify the brethren. Fortify the brethren. He uses two words. Long-suffering and love. I'll be honest. The people that clamor for patience and long-suffering are often the very people that exhibit the least of it. I've found that most of the time, and you just bear with me, God tells me to sit down, I'll sit down. But I've found that the people that that very often, they'll say, well, church ought to be a family. They don't want to treat church like their family. The people that say, well, church ought to be about love, very often they don't want to be very loving to other people. The people that say, well, church ought to be about being patient with one another. Often they don't want to be patient with anybody else. That's not always true. But I found it to be true very often. The reality is this. We cannot dictate the behavior of others. But we're the only ones that can determine the behavior of ourselves. And so he says this. Our goal should not be to protect our own interest. Our goal should not be to insulate ourselves away from emotional offense or slight. Our goal as members of a local body should be to fortify each other. So your focus ought not be on how can I keep myself from being wronged. Your focus ought to be on how can I encourage others that may have been wronged or how can I encourage others that may be discouraged. And he lists two things. One, we're to be long-suffering with their faults. Again, there's certain words that we like the sound of, but we don't like the reality of. Can I give you an example? Patience. We like the word patience. We like the concept of patience. 
We just don't like what patience is built for. Patience is not built for when things are going good, because then you don't have to try to be patient. Patience is built for when things are going bad. We don't like the concept of patience, though we like the word, we like the ideal, but we don't like what it actually means. Another word like this is the word long-suffering. We like the idea of long-sufferingness when it's someone else being long-suffering with us. But we don't like the idea of long-suffering when it means treating others in that way. You know why? Because long-sufferingness, just as patience is built for when things are challenging, long-sufferingness is built for when people have failed. If a person is not in the wrong, you don't have to be long-suffering with them. Can I give you a very simple definition of what long-suffering means? It means to put up with. To put up with. To put up with. You are suffering long with a person. You're suffering them, meaning that you are permitting them, though it is not pleasant. And long means for a long period of time. Long suffering. Just like the Lord, when He was baptized, said, Suffer it now to be so. John didn't want to baptize Him. But Jesus said, because it's the right thing to do, you need to put aside what you naturally want and do it anyway. To suffer someone means that they're doing something you don't like. You wish was different. You'd change if you could. But because you love them, you're going to suffer it just the same. Long-sufferingness is built for when people are wrong. If you're part of a body of Christ, if you're part of a local church... You're going to have to deal with people being wrong sometimes. And sometimes being steadfast in their wrongness. When that happens, when people have failed, when people have faults, and they do, there again, this is another term. We all like to say it. We say, well, there ain't no perfect people here. And then we're shocked when somebody acts imperfectly. We'll say, well, we're all just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. Then we're shocked when people act just like sinners saved by grace. We're going to have to be long-suffering with each other. <coughs> Sometimes people are going to do things and say things that you don't like. That's the world. If you can figure out a way to keep everybody from doing something that you don't like, if you can figure out a way to make everybody behave, I sure wish you'd tell me. People fail. They have faults. They do things wrong. And guess what? Sometimes their brokenness will get in your way. I told this story. I was preaching down at Brother McNeese's church. And at that time, I'd bought, I'd bought a lawnmower off Brother Kerry. And uh, I got it home and it, it broke on me right away. That's how he is. But I got a good deal on it. I mean, I stole it from him, so I really can't say anything. But I, either way, I got this mower... Big Cub Cadet, triple blade and everything. Man, I was excited about it. I'm still excited about it. I hate mowing. I ain't excited about mowing, but if I'm going to have to do it, I'm glad I can do it on that mower. And I was excited about it, man. And the day before we were supposed to leave on vacation, I was mowing my yard for the last time. And there ain't nothing like that last time that you mow your yard right before you go on vacation. Because as far as I'm concerned, if I'm on vacation, I don't even have a yard. If I'm on vacation, Tennessee don't even exist. And I was ready to be done with it. I've been talking to some of y'all. I mean, we'd sit around. It was around VBS time. We'd sit around. I'd talk about, the, man, I'm excited about this mower, getting it worked on, getting it right and everything. And I was mowing my yard for the last time. And then all of a sudden, man, about halfway through my yard, I hear, ka And then this, 
sounded like a chopper taking off. And one of those pulleys on that three-blade system had busted. And man, I got off that thing and I was mad. And I ain't even going to say the things that I said. I'm just thankful for grace. But I was so mad I couldn't see straight. I was talking about that low-down, broken mower, piece of junk. Should have never bought the thing. Piece of garbage anyway. Going to roll it off in the ditch and set it on fire. Then call Carrie and make him come put it out because it was his mower. I love that thing. And then its brokenness got in my way. And it impositioned me and inconvenienced me. All of a sudden, I wasn't so patient anymore. It's how we are. We know we're going to church with a bunch of broken people. We know the church is filled with only broken people. And we don't mind that until their brokenness inconveniences us. We have to be long-suffering with their faults. And then notice this. He says, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, the word forbearance is a little different than the word long-suffering. Long-suffering means to put up. But forbearing means to hold up, means to fortify something, to lift it up, to keep it from falling. Not only are we to be long-suffering with their faults, but we're to be loving with forbearance. In other words, part of our job as believers, as part of a local body, is to try to hold each other up when we're about to fall. Again, we trumpet our weakness We're not ashamed of our weakness. I hope we're not. But then all of a sudden, when somebody needs us to be strong, we don't want to be strong. Then we want to back away and say, well, that's their problem, not my problem. But it's your job and mine to not turn away from people when they're struggling. You may not be able to meet their need. It may not be God's will for you to meet their need. God might be willing that He would meet their need in some other way. But we ought to do everything we can to try to hold each other up, encourage each other, remind each other that the Lord's faithful. No matter what you're going through, no matter what problems you've got that you can't see a solution for, God's not going to let you go. He's not going to fail you. Stay faithful. Stay encouraged. Stay in the Lord. Stay in the Word of God. Stay in the prayer closet, forbearing one another in love, holding each other up. I'm going to give you one final thing and I'm done. I see in this passage we are to glorify the Lord, we're to crucify the flesh, we're to fortify the brethren. But look at verse 3. The Bible says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to unify the church. Unify the church. Let me say a word, and this isn't really the, the majority of what I want to say about it. But let me say a quick word about the source of unity. He says, it's the unity of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. My pastor used to say there's a difference between unity and union. And he said as an illustration, you can tie the tails of two house cats together and you'll have union, but you won't have unity. Unity means not just to be yoked, but it means to be going in the same direction. I found this to be true. Trying to get independent Baptists to work together is about like herding cats. Who could be fit for the task? You know, for me to be able to unify and and to foster unity and to maintain unity, the only way 
would be for me to be able to somehow live inside of you, tell you what to do at each occasion, at each moment, and to know what other people are going to do and how they're going to respond, and to know not only that, but the right direction, the right path that lay ahead. I can't. But there is one that lives inside every believer that can lead them, that can guide them, that does know what every other believer is thinking and experiencing and needs and requires. And that not only knows that, but knows the mind of God and the mind of Christ and knows the right direction and what the right outcome will be. Because of that, He is the source of unity. And that's the Holy Ghost. That's the Holy Ghost. Unity only comes in a church when people are minding the Spirit of God. It's the only way it can happen. I see the source of unity, but then I see the securing of unity. Now, the Holy Ghost is going to do His job. He's going to try to lead you. But it's your responsibility to do your job. And I see two things implied here. He says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity. That tells me that unity is nascent in the body of Christ if only believers will permit it to be found there. We have to, number one, protect unity. You know how we keep the peace? By not being the one that disturbs the peace. I'll tell you this, man. If every one of God's people would just say, I ain't going to be the problem. I won't be the problem. I can't solve everybody else's problem. I can't cause them to not be a problem. But I'm making my mind up right here and now that I won't be the problem. It'd be amazing, be remarkable, how quickly unity would be... You know why? Because unity is already striving to exist. You know why that is? Because the same Spirit that lives within me is the same Spirit that lives within you, the Spirit of God. Therefore, there's no inborn discord. God has a different divine perspective on unity. We, humanly speaking, look at at a room and we say, here we have, you know, 60, 78, whatever it is. Here we have these people that have differing perspectives, differing priorities, differing ideals of what they want to see happen. How can we all get on the same page? God looks at it and says, I see a room full of people that are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God only wants one thing and desires one thing and says one thing. Therefore, if they'll simply get out of the way... And follow the Spirit of God. Unity can exist. In other words, we look at it and say, how can we create unity? God looks at it and says, I've birthed by my Spirit unity within you if you'll not resist it. And the only way that can happen is by us saying, it ain't about me and what I desire and what I seek. I'm going to follow in obedience the leading of God's Spirit. The unity don't have to be concocted. It just has to be kept. It doesn't have to be conjured. It just has to be permitted by us following the leading of the Spirit of God and not letting ourselves get in the mix. Our ambitions, our desires, our pride, our childishness. Instead saying, I'm crucified with Christ. We are to protect unity. But then number two, I find this interesting. We are to pursue unity. Pursue unity. He says, endeavoring. That's strong language. Most of the time you'll find it in the Bible, it's associated with the word diligence. To be diligent about something. 
So in other words, what Paul's talking about here is not passive. It is submissive in the sense that the Spirit of God will foster and will will uh, conjure or will create or will uh, drive unity in the local church if we will only get ourselves out of the way and follow the leading of God's Spirit. We don't have to figure out the way to get everybody on board. The Spirit of God that indwells all of us, He is the board. Amen? And if we'll just follow Him, we'll be on board. But not only that, we are to... Though it's though it may be submissive, it's not passive because he says we're to endeavor. It's active. We're to pursue after unity. Unity in the local body. And we're not talking about unity between all these ecumenical groups. We're not talking about unity. Listen, uh, the so much of ecclesiastical separation is due to outside organizations trying to do what is the job of only the local church. If we'd let the church do what God called the church to do and quit trying to look to extra biblical and extra uh, extra scriptural entities to do what God called only the church to do, we wouldn't have to deal with the issues that are surrounding the ecumenical movement. We're not talking about that. I'm just talking about in the local body. I'm talking about in these walls and in these people. Our goal should be unity. Our goal should not be self-preservation. Our goal should be unity. Not getting back at people. Not seeing that I'm treated fairly and right. But what can I do to make sure that there's unity in the body? Saying, I won't be the problem. I won't be the problem. Somebody else may cause a problem. If they do, do everything I can to try to see that the Lord's glorified. And to see that the problems, but I won't be the problem it'll have to be somebody else because i refuse to put myself on the throne i refuse to put myself on the pedestal i refuse to put myself in the seat of priority i'll instead see god glorified and see the body strengthened